Did you see something, Fig? It was dark. I didn't see it. But it makes noises like this. Laanta Bridge. We need to scan the area for polarized EM signatures. Quickly. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge for the 400th episode. This is Tyler Orton. Giving birth out of your mouth. <laughs> that is not the way I want to ring in 400 episodes. <laughs> well, Cam, uh, who would say something like that? <laughs> well, um, Nurse Chapel. Yeah, Nurse Chapel, yes. Um, and we're yeah. here this week to talk about the latest episode of Strange New Worlds, Memento Mori. Yes, Cam. Uh, before we get into that, though, I, I, I do want to acknowledge that uh, one Obi-Wan Kenobi, the uh, Disney Plus limited TV series. It is airing beginning now uh, this past week. Uh, the, the timing doesn't really work out with regards to the first week of episodes, but if you come by next week for the next episode of our Strange New Worlds review, we're going to have a whole bunch of episodes banked and ready to talk about with regards to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And, you know, we'll, we'll keep up our tradition of amazing review names uh, for the Star Wars uh, franchise. So it'll be um, Ortiwan Camnobi. Uh, moving <laughs> forward, and then uh, Cam, did you see the uh, Andor trailer drop uh, for ahead of the uh, August premiere of the uh, other Star Wars series? Well, I saw that it dropped moments before we started recording, but I haven't watched it yet. Okay, I personally think uh, it, it looks quite fantastic. It wasn't particularly a series I was all that thrilled by. Uh, we kind of know what uh, <laughs> happens to Andor, but uh, or Cassian Andor, I should say. Uh, but look, I'm uh, I'm pumped for that. You've got Stellan Skarsgård as an Imperial uh, commander. Uh, I'm sold right there. And uh, I think we've decided the name for those reviews. It will be uh, Cam Dorton. How are we going to do the Acolyte? Uh, what's the Acolyte? Remind me again. I don't think anyone knows. It's a upcoming show set in the Star Wars universe, and they're not saying much more than that. Okay. Well, um, I'm sure there's some sort of stretch. There's the Akam Light Tyler. I, I is that stretching it too too far? Or maybe just Ty at the end. Um, Akam hmm. Light Lighty tie Light tie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so Cam, let's get into Strange New Worlds. Really, we're getting uh, four hundred. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Uh, okay. So I, I was asking you this question uh, last week as well. What Star Trek episode uh, from, you know, the, the 800 or so that exists, uh, was this most derivative of? Um, probably Balance of Terror is the one that jumped the most to mind, yeah. Although it does have subtle musical cues to Doomsday Machine. Uh, we also see that uh, the episode Disaster, one of the classic TNG episodes, uh, you even have the stuff with uh, two crew members, you know, a chief engineer and a really smart person uh, stuck in a cargo bay and they have to open the hatch and grab on for dear life so that they are, uh, they make sure they're not blown out of the hatch there. So um, I don't think this is just, you know, like a coincidence, but it's also, at what point do you go past homage and, and go towards plagiarism um well i guess that could be asked for about many classic star trek episodes and that's something i talked about previously um with strange new worlds and that i am enjoying the homages to classic episodes and the way they are trying to kind of look there were so many complaints with like discovery and picard people like us being like why can't we do just more of classic star trek storytelling and their approach to that has been kind of to lure people back in by presenting stories that feel very much in the format of classic Star Trek episodes. So, like, I'm enjoying this, but I am hopefully looking forward to a future where the show finds its legs, finds its audience, and can kind of then split off and do things that feel unique unto itself. But, you know, TNG had its naked now back in the day. So That's it, it very seems, true. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just wish that before they did these very, very overt homages, I I wish they kind of grounded themselves in kind of the universe and, that they're trying to create here, the canvas that they're trying to create. What are kind of the unique stories that we haven't really seen before? And we, we've kind of, we've seen that every single episode, all four episodes, uh, ever since the series kicked off, whether it's, uh, you know, virus infects the crew, uh, you know, the kind of a submarine attack sort of deal. Uh, you know, Deep Space Nine um, waited, I think, four seasons until they did theirs with uh, Starship Down, which this episode reminded me a lot of Starship Down, you know, uh, you know, we had the kind of the first contact episodes with uh, uh, Strange New Worlds, episode one, and we've seen so many first contact episodes before this, you know, so it's kind of, I, I want them to tell kind of a, a very unique story, one in which we haven't quite seen before. Maybe the closest they did was episode two, with The Comet, and, and the reason, you know, people are like, oh, Tyler, you're being like way too picky. Here's the issue, though. What if you wanted to do, what if it's episode four of a new Star Trek series, and you're like, you know what? I think we've earned it. I think we're ready to do an homage to the visitor or the inner light. You know, we, we, we've earned it at this point. And the problem is you just haven't earned that cred quite yet. You need to build up to that. And when you have the, you know, the, the swelling music talking about the sacrifices of the, uh, the crew lost here, I just think it's a little bit too early in the game to make those emotions like feel real to me here. It, it seems as if they're um, trying a little too hard here. Despite you know four episodes in camp, I've enjoyed every single one of these episodes. I have not found them frustrating the same way that I found uh, Discovery and uh, Picard to be frustrating in a lot of their storytelling features. But I do think it's a legitimate criticism. It, it just uh, you know I, I I don't want it to be too derivative, knowing in fact that's. There's that classic episode of South Park where it was literally called The Simpsons Already Did It. And it's how there's just so many, there's a limited number of kind of stories you can ultimately tell. But I just wish that they would, uh, I don't know, stretch their wings just a little bit more as opposed to making, I think they're supposed to be kind of nods to to fans. And I, I don't know, I just wonder if it's coming off as a little too thirsty, like, please like us, please like us. Remember all your other fun Star Trek adventures, too. I mean, this one did work on me. I, I think this was probably, in my eyes, the best hour of live-action Star Trek we've gotten in the Kurtzman era. Um, I don't know what I would hold up next to it, to be honest. And in a way, that's kind of damning with faint praise, but... When I rack my brains to go back through my various Discovery and Picard episodes, I don't have a lot of competition. Yeah, uh, for me, I would put uh, an episode like Nepenthe uh, uh -huh. from Star Trek Picard. I put that one over this one. I would also put uh, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, uh, also from season one of a uh, live-action Christmas series uh, from Discovery. I had ranked that higher than this one. And to me, th those emotional beats that they were hitting, they did feel earned to me in a way that this didn't really hurt me, uh, uh, hit me on any sort of emotional level other than like, oh, this is kind of fun sort of adventure that we're going on here and the characters get to be smart. But I, I, I just even point out to the fact that, Cam, we had an episode like uh, Monsters from Star Trek Picard Season 2 just a couple weeks ago. Uh, you're entering into the psyche of a main character's mind as they try to deal with their past, past trauma. And we're all getting already getting that once more with the mind melt sequence involving La'an and her brother on the Gorn nursery planet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the Picard one was just... I, I don't even want to get on to that Picard storyline because to me that just... Nothing about it worked, whereas this felt organic to me from a character standpoint because it's Spock. We have a long history of mind melds um, in very tense circumstances and Spock taking part in this. And it made a lot of sense to me organically through the story as to why this would happen versus when I am watching Picard like on a bed and they have to go into his mind for reasons that even I barely understand. Well, and for me, and I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm hammering this episode a little bit too hard than I mean to, especially for an episode that I legit enjoyed. But I think about how I found uh, Lethe the season one episode of Discovery, I thought it was more successful at what you could do with uh, Mind Meld and, and what it reveals about, you know, past trauma and just kind of the secrets being held about how it is really up to Sarek to deny Burnham entry into the Vulcan Expeditionary Group all 
in a bid to ensure that uh, Spock would be accepted instead. You know, I just, uh, whereas the emotional beat I got from this is that, like, La'an's brother figured out Gorn Morse code, essentially. I was just like, okay, th- there you go. So, though, look, I'm picking apart little things. M- maybe I should take a look at this episode more holistically and look at the stuff that really works. I think they really made the Gorn scary, like a legit formidable threat. If they are looking into new hunting ground and they pop up in this kind of mysterious fashion, you know, uh, you know, every couple of weeks or something, I'm down for this. Like, I, I think that this could be kind of the, the good um, threatening menace that would work for a series such as this. Well, I know they've talked about how they wanted sort of a big bad on their show, like an alien species that could pop up again and again. And, I mean, the Gorn fit the bill because they're mysterious. We know bits and pieces, but we don't know a lot. So there's a lot of room to mine the mythology there. And we've seen them be quite formidable, you know, opposite Kirk, of course, in Arena and also Archer in the Mirror Universe two-parter and Enterprise. And this, to me, was just like the way they were looking at sort of their hunting tactics in this, you know, submarine-style space battle and the way we can delve into that, it looks like it could do some things with, like, I like the Herogen on Voyager, but it always felt like they kind of stopped short. It's like they kind of came up with this species that was a little bit like the Predator from the Predator movies, and then they kind of backed away. And it feels like with the Gorn, they can come up with new tactics and new strategies the, the, the Gorn might have in battle. And I like the way that they constantly, you know, the Enterprise thought they had the upper hand and boom, they'd revealed their position and we had the whole group of Gorn moving in. I'm looking forward to kind of like a different style of battle tactics coming from the Gorn in the future. You and I have kind of uh, complained a little bit about the, the VFX style in this show and look, it looks rather, you know, stylized and cartoony. I thought the sequences in which we are at the event horizon of this black hole, in which we're watching the uh, smaller Gorn ship implode under just the sheer weight of everything, I, I thought the just looked absolutely fantastic. And even the look of the 1701 just you know, shooting by, I thought it looked better than it has at any point so far this season. When I think back to, like, original series episodes that really worked for me in this style, Doomsday Machine, obviously, Balance of Terror, there is, like, a fist-pumping exhilaration to that comes with those episodes, and this one had it. Like, when I watched him fire out and pull the, uh, the pike maneuver at the end, I was getting chills. Like, this really worked for me. It gives me a lot of confidence in, you know, some of the action on Star Trek, uh, Discovery and Picard kind of stuff has not been particularly interesting to me. And this episode, in a way, almost feel like it was reframing what Star Trek combat is, which is Mm -hmm. submarine combat versus your kind of Top Gun style um, combat, which the Kelvinverse kind of introduced, and it felt like Discovery and um, to a lesser degree, but somewhat Picard carried onwards with. And to me, this sort of grounded back with what we saw in the original series, where it's built on tension and strategy and very smart people having to outthink each other. And they pulled it off in a way that I think had the sort of blockbuster thrills that an audience will find exciting. So I'd like to see them, now that they've done this, reframed it, show us how we can expand on that in the future as opposed to just going back to, you know, 15 phasers going off at the same time and the yeah. ship just kind of like flying all over the place. Uh, so, Kim, I, I mean this very honestly, but uh, who had a bigger fist pump? You or that ensign at Tactical when they found out that Uhura and Hammer survived the uh, the hatch blowing up. I was weeping at that point, Tyler. I just had Kleenex in my hands, and I was just sobbing in triumph. <laughs> I think that guy, he uh, doesn't even belong on the Discovery Bridge. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The cheerleader squad on Discovery. It's like funny because I would say in general, Discovery is like kind of a darker, more serious show, uh, often very self-serious. Whereas this is sort of the more lighthearted, fun show. And yet I would say the Discovery Bridge crew are far more cheerleaders than the uh, Strange New Worlds crew so far. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I, I, I think this episode, for what I was trying to accomplish ultimately, uh, you know, four episodes in, uh, you are building up kind of what, what the character motivations are. And you're doing it in, I, I would say, in a format that's a little bit derivative. I, I can get over that very easily. But um, they are spending a lot of time with Lon 
which I, I think is interesting. Like They seem to at least have an idea of what they want to do with this character, at least by the time we get to the end of the season. I was complaining last week, like, why do we have, like, what is the reason that we need to have two characters of the main cast that are both genetically modified? I, I hope they answer that question at some point. Well, yeah, I mean, I would hope there's a larger purpose. It's given a very easy shorthand as to why Una and uh, Lon have, like, a relationship and, you know, are obviously somewhat confidants with each other. It gives you kind of a shorthand into that, but I hope larger picture, there's a little more mythology diving to go there, and I'm sure there will be because they're already... You look at, like, Lon, they've already given us a lot with her backstory. This one gave us even more and her history with the Gorn. It feels like this is a character they're very invested in, and um, you and I had talked about, well, you know, I'm sure in, you know, the previous three episodes before this one, it was like we had our Uhura episode, we had our Una episode, we had kind of our Pike slash Lon episode. So, like, who gets the next one? And it feels like, so far, they're really... They really want us to pay attention to Lon, and they see her with like a fairly high level of importance. And I'm hoping that that is something like you and I, when this show was launched, kind of had assumed it would be more of a triumvirate, kind of the classic triumvirate, just because yeah. that's the model of TOS, and the show was very much evoking TOS. But I'm really encouraged to see them looking at Lon, and it seems like really seeing this as a character who is going to be important to the show. And there'll be more time to develop the other ones. But it really feels like at this point, they've elevated her above even Una, who's gotten less screen time, I think. Well, I think one of the other smart things that they're doing is they are pairing different characters up with each other just to see what those dynamics are going to be like. Yet Uhura and Hammer spending essentially the entire episode uh, together. And guess what? Uhura gets uh, high grades uh, by the end of it, or, <laughs> or, or high marks. Do you, Cam, do you say grades or do you say marks? I'm just curious. Grades. Yeah, so from what I understand, uh, people in Western Canada say grades, people in Central and Eastern Canada say marks. These are written by American writers, so I'm, I'm curious uh, how they ultimately uh, follow along that line there. Hmm. I'd never really, uh, yeah, come across that difference, but uh, well, there you have it. Okay. Uh, Cam, <laughs> it's an honest question. I don't know if you know this, if it seems... If it seems like a really uh, obvious question, forgive me. Do you know what the uh, the the Puget Sound is? I know the name, the Puget Sound, but um, what does it relate to? Like, where is Puget Sound? It's uh, where uh, like Seattle's located. You know how like Washington State has yeah. kind of this kind of big uh, wedge. You know, kind of right between it. You've got the Olympic Peninsula on one side, and then you have you know, uh, Metro Seattle and other uh, big city centers uh, on the other side. And then Puget Sound is kind of the, the body of water kind of cutting through Washington State there. And uh, it's a it's a bit of, like, I get it. Like, I, I, I grew up in Seattle, but um, I don't know how, how many people get the references uh, to, uh, you know, the, the SS Puget Sound. Whereas if somebody's not familiar with the, uh, the, the word Puget, um, maybe, what if I... <laughs> Cam, what if I called my ship the the SS Kaka Sound? Like people are gonna be like, like what what does Kaka sound like? You know, um, I, I'm not making fun of the language or, or anything like that. I'm just like I, I just don't know if Puget means anything, and I believe it's an indigenous uh, name. I just don't know if it means anything. People would just instead of thinking of a body of water, which a sound is, uh, you know, like in Vancouver or Metro Vancouver, we have How Sound, for example, but. Um, I don't know how many people would realize it's a reference to a body of water versus just the physical, like, um, oral, uh, uh, oral, I should say, vibrations that, you know, hit your eardrums there. Right, right. And I'm trying to remember when Lower Decks was naming all of its various shuttles after um, bodies of water in um, Canada, did any of them jump out as, like, kind of awkward names? I don't think it was Bodies of Water in Canada. I no? think it was the USS Vancouver. They had uh, shuttles in there named after uh, neighborhoods in Vancouver. And right. what they had, I think, in the USS Cerritos is, I think they had names of shuttles like the the USS Redwood, you know, kind of references to, say, some uh, some parks in California. I think there was, like, the USS Yosemite as well. I might be mistaken on, on that one, but I think the USS Redwood was one of the shuttles there. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of the neighborhoods that uh, yeah jumped out there. But um, 
I, at this point, I've heard so many things referenced as names of starships. I kind of don't really even blink anymore. I hear Puget yeah. Sound. I'm like, fair enough. I've heard of Puget Sound, so that works for me. Um, I thought this was kind of an interesting hook for an episode, too, of like the Starfleet uh, Remembrance Day. We had this introductory segment where Lon didn't want to wear the badge because she wasn't comfortable acknowledging this trauma of her past. And we saw by the end that she was now willing to accept this as something she'd gone through. And just the way they hit the buttons on the front and the back of the episode was a sort of thing. It's very classic Star Trek of sort of like a small little personal crisis, the larger story, and then the button at the end. But I thought this was really effective. And it's the sort of thing that's kind of so obvious. Mm-hmm. You wonder why they don't do it more often because it does work for a character journey. Well, they're finally realizing like we should, you know, tell contained stories within, you know, uh, 50 to 60 minutes versus like, oh, you'll get to it by the end of the season, and that'll be the character's journey. But you don't notice, like, in, uh, you know, uh, the last couple seasons of uh, Discovery and Picard, a lot of these characters, the main characters, have been forgotten about as the season progresses. And I think in a format such as this, which is more episodic in nature, you're not going to forget about kind of the character's journey within the course of one hour. So, look, even if... okay. Let me point out to uh, Dr. Mabenga from last episode, Cam. Like, yeah. that character had a journey within, I'd say, six minutes of screen time. And I, I think that's easy to do when you don't want to puzzle box your way across an entire season. I, I think it's just far more satisfying to watch as well. And I would say it probably is more effective emotionally. I think... Yes. I mean, I'm not going to speak for all Star Trek fans. I can only speak for myself. But, like, I felt more watching Dr. Mbenga at the end with his daughter reading her a story than I did after 10 episodes of watching Picard want to find love. Well, uh, or uh, Burnham go to a casino planet and uh, hustle people out of uh, UFC money. Well, okay. I I could watch 10 episodes of that. (laughs) Discovery had the whole kind of fractured relationship between her and Book throughout the season that they carried on. Do you have like great sweeping memories of their reunion at the end? Well, Kim, we debated, like, are they even a couple by the end? And I think we landed on uh, the uh, Facebook relationship status of it's complicated. Like, yeah. so it's just kind of, so was that even a satisfying end? And from what I understand, did they write the finale as if it could have been like a series finale as well? Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. What do you think that would have been like as a series finale for uh, Discovery? It wouldn't have been the worst finale ever. Um True. It, I, it's so hard for me to answer this because I grow more and more kind of embarrassed about the state of Discovery watching these episodes of Strange New Worlds where it's like I'm beginning to feel actively just sorry for the actors on Discovery who I think are, to a person, really good and capable of delivering characters we remember. And I just look at the material they're dealing with and how had that been the end of Discovery, you know what my response would have been? A shrug. Like, okay, whatever, because that's kind of what the show has devolved into. And I feel like those actors deserve to be getting the material the actors on this show are getting, where even if it's like last week's episode, which isn't going to be one of the all-time great episodes in Strange New Worlds, very unlikely, um, everyone got things to do that were kind of memorable. And, you know, we're talking about Dr. Mbenga and his daughter. Like, it kind of meant something in that moment. And the people on Discovery aren't getting that kind of material, and it's really sad. Well, even a moment like Hammer talking about how he wanted to be a botanist, you know, this is a man from an ice planet talking about his love for flora. And I can understand that because it's something so foreign to him. And like a moment like that versus, I don't know, like (laughs) a Washington apologizing for being too eager to help out. Oh, I forgot. You know, like that was her standout moment. Was that the episode where the um the, the the dot died the horrible death or something trying to save the crew? Yeah, stormy weather, and she yeah. wanted to run off the bridge and go help someone further down on another deck, and like uh, Saru had to keep ordering her to stay at her console, and then she eventually came back and she's like, you know, I just want to apologize for that, Captain, and that's supposed to be kind of like. The, the the equivalent of, of kind of a uh, Hammer moment that we talked about this episode or Dr. Mbenga's, like, uh, daughter moment. And, and just, that stuff just does not land. Or remember when, um, like, Reese was revealing to us that uh, 
a friend of his died in a hurricane or something? Like, yeah, that was really weird. That one, that was out of nowhere. <laughs> it was just like, okay, like a lot of this stuff is just like, as you say, it's, it's like these moments don't quite land. I will say this in Discovery's defense, and well, it's gonna be a backhanded compliment. David Ayala, uh, who played uh, Book, he was a revelation to me uh, last season, in which just the garbage he was given and how much weight he was able to give it. Like, he was fantastic. And he's dealing with stuff like Ghost Dad. And, <laughs> you know, and despite... And his back and forth with... um Oh, who is the uh, the Sean Doyle character? Uh, uh, Tarkin. Uh, or not... Tarka. Not, yeah. Tark, yeah, not Grand Moff Tarkin. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, but even That'll his, be the next season. <laughs> But even the back and forth there, where it wasn't great material, it's like, didn't we predict, like, five episodes ahead, like, where this storyline was all going to go by the end? And, and we were very accurate with our prediction, and so it's kind of like a headache when you, the audience, is so far ahead of your characters. Even still, like, just watching David Ayala and Sean Doyle go back and forth there, they were able to elevate themselves above the material. Think about, as you said, Cam, what if they're getting great material like they're getting here in Star Trek uh, Strange New Worlds? I, th I think it'd just be that much more of a, uh, a godsend to the franchise that uh, you have these fantastic actors and characters that I like, but characters that have grown to frustrate me more and more as the series has progressed you know, in seasons three and four of Discovery. Yeah, and I don't think there's like any great difference in terms of the caliber of actors they have on Strange New Worlds to Discovery. It's just the material. And I look at the Lawn story in this episode about someone who's, you know, obviously has this trauma that they've kind of buried down and has to work through it over the course of an episode. And then I look at how they dealt with Detmer's PTSD on Discovery. And I go like, you know, there's kind of similar story structures you could build around these two experiences. And you look at the way this one dealt with Lon, and I was actually surprised this was a Lon episode. I didn't anticipate that, really. Um, so that was welcome. But you look at how they dealt with it in Detmer, where it felt cartoonish, despite the show being much more self-serious about itself. So uh, it's just frustrating. Well, it's also... Patrick Stewart's a fantastic actor, but the way that they decided they were going to touch on like mental health issues in the 21st century last season, it was pretty atrocious. Yeah. Yeah, when well, they often take wild swings at these things on Picard and Discovery and really fall short, whereas it feels like so far on um, Strange New Worlds, the little character crises we've seen, they're kind of smaller, a little more intimate, and they are something that they can sit down and talk to other characters about, and other characters can relate to them in some way. Whereas I don't know that that's always the case where they get to like really grandiose things on Picard and uh, Discovery. If you bear with me as I, I criticize Strange New Worlds just a little bit more, I, I'm glad that you pointed out like kind of the, the personal crises kind of going on. Like that's what I'm invested in. Four episodes in, every single episode has been existential in nature. It, it's all about life and death. I, I do hope moving forward you don't necessarily need to have life and death situations um, in, in which you center all the tension of your episode around. I, I think there's definitely an opportunity to have some of those smaller stories. You know, I, I, the, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm just thinking about like, I, I, I don't know why I keep referencing uh, this one, but um, an episode like uh, Homebound, or is it Homeward? Anyways, the one with Nikolai Ryzhenko. And I like it, that this is the one you're holding up to people as like, we need more of this. But, but it, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's a mediocre episode, but you're dealing yeah. with more like internal family dynamics versus life and death all the time. It wasn't as if Worf was going to die in that episode. Whereas this one, it's making you think, hey, Uhura could die. And that kind of, the tension is sapped right there because we know her is not going to die. And, and even a character like, okay, I, I need to ask you this, uh, uh, Cam. Um, chief Kyle, the, the transporter room chief. Yeah. Um, to me, he's supposed to be the same Kyle from the original series. I was on Memory Alpha and they have two different entries for the chief Kyle from Strange New Worlds versus Lieutenant Kyle in uh, the original series. Um, are they the same person in your head? I, I mean, that's how I picture it in my own head. Like, what what are the chances that, like, both have served... Like, uh, Kyle, like, did serve as a transporter chief at times in the original series, and we have a chief Kyle here. Like, that's very on the nose. Like, like they've got to be the same person, right? It would 
shock me if it was a coincidence. It feels like it's an homage, right? Like, it has to be the same person. Yeah, I, I wonder if the only reason that they have two different entries on Memory Alpha, though, is because, you know, one actor was, like, Caucasian, and, and the other actor is of uh, East Asian descent. And I'm kind of like, that doesn't really matter to me. Like, we saw Robert April was uh, portrayed by a black actor in the uh, first episode, whereas in the animated series, yeah, I mean, he was Caucasian there. I don't think it really matters if, like, I don't know, Cam, like, um... Like, would you care if, like, a, uh, a a legacy character was originally played by an Italian actor, and then when he was recast, he was, I don't know, uh, portrayed by an actor of Russian descent? Like, I, I, uh, I don't think no. you'd blink twice at that. So why, why would I blink twice at um, somebody uh, of some other ethnicity uh, being played there? I, I, it's just a matter of, like, your shade of skin? That That's kind of what irks me there. I, I have to believe these are the same characters. And also, um, it would be very strange to me if they were like, oh no, people would never accept that this was the same Kyle on the original series, but they would accept that Benedict Cumberbatch was the same as like <laughs> Ricardo Montalban. Like, yes. don't worry, that one makes sense on paper. We don't have to do any sort of explanation there, but Kyle, I don't know, that's a stretch. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding there. I, and I guess the point I was ultimately trying to make though, is like when I saw Kyle picking up like a fellow crew member to make a run for the uh, uh they're closing kind of the the uh the bulkheads or whatever and the guy pushes Kyle through at the last moment although this seemed like more kind of like a uh a, a jack uh from the Titanic sort of moment where he's kind of shoved off the uh, life raft where it's unnecessary but um I, for me in my head like the, the tension wasn't there because I kind of knew that Kyle was going to survive this yeah i didn't expect him to die to me it was more just like placing a familiar character in a high tension circumstance versus a lot of you know lower ranking crew members who we don't know who they are to me it was just like placing us in that particular situation through him so is the tension moving forward not going to be about like whether or not you think uhura or spock will survive it's that the tension surrounds how are they going to get themselves out of this life or death situation that's where it is for me and also in the future, I don't know that I would expect this now, but we don't know the fates of characters like Hammer or um, Lon or even Una, really. Oh, no, Una we do. But um, some of these other original characters we don't know. So there is a little bit of room for tension, I would say, as the show goes further down the road. Probably not season one, but, you know, episodes, or seasons like three or four or five or whatever. There might be a little bit more there. But, um, yeah, to me, it's going to be built more in the situation... Because you can watch Balance of Terror or Doomsday Machine on the original series, and I think you know that Kirk and Spock are not going to die, but they find ways to make those stories very intense just through the storytelling. And I think that's what they're going to have to rely on, which also means that as creators, they've actually got to write some genuinely suspenseful stories versus just dangling a character's fate over the audience, which you know a lazier show might have to do or might be willing to do. Well, I think about a series like The Sopranos, where, sure, a character might die in a given episode, but often the uh, the tension was, you know, about, like, internal dynamics, you know, like uh, people feeling disrespected or not appreciated, and how that informs their motivations and their actions that creates conflict, whether it is, you know, somebody getting a piece of the uh, the uh, uh, union action or, or something like that. You know, it doesn't have to be about life or death. And we saw that a lot on, say, uh, I just think about an episode like uh, DS9's Bar Association in, in which the episode is about Rom forming a union yeah, and Quark fighting against that. It, it wasn't life or death, but you f there, there's tension and there were stakes. And, and that's what I want. It's like you, you don't need life or death stakes for you to be invested in the stakes. I think that's something, too, they'll be able to really mine as the show continues to evolve because we're really just at this point in episode four still in the relationship building phase. We just last episode got to understand that Una and Lon have a connection, but we need to build up more of these connections and then we can kind of play with those and kind of put more peril involved with those um, relationships in the future. But it really does feel like these first handful of episodes have been about reframing what this show is um, and then also establishing each of the characters. And 
as we go forward, we can hopefully introduce some supporting characters that can play roles on the show. You know, I think of a character like Shran on Enterprise. He's not showing up in like the first couple of episodes. He shows up fairly early on, but then it's only sparsely, but then becomes someone who's more recurring and having genuinely tense circumstances tied to him. That's the sort of thing I think we can get to maybe even by the end of this season, but I still think we're in that sort of solidifying who each of these people is. Like, we still don't really know who Ortegas is as an individual. Yeah. Um, Nurse Chapel, kind of the same thing. So I suspect for the, at least the next couple of episodes, we're going to be still in sort of establishing backgrounds, establishing relationships, that sort of thing. Well, it, I do appreciate this was, you, you could call it a, a lawn-centric episode, but it was very much an ensemble episode too. You know, uh, Pike had lots to do. Spock had lots to do. You know, I, uh, Hemmer and Uhura had lots to do. And I think if they can kind of find that right balance between giving everybody at least something to do. And I like, I, and I think they're doing it more successfully than say, like, I, I know people absolutely love TNG, but ask yourself, like any given episode, what did Troy have to offer other than, you know, I sense mystery uh, behind this person, <laughs> you know? Um, and she had her moments a lot, you know, in which you'd get those character based moments but they, they often the focus of those episodes more often than not it was either picard or Riker or data yeah and it feels like well the problem with troy was that she was a counselor which they could always use as an excuse to limit i think her input into a story because it's like well we don't know what a counselor would do here whereas all the characters on strange new worlds fulfill very well established star trek positions so you kind of have to involve them in crisis situations and i think it was a very smart move in this episode to have uhura learning about engineering from hemmer because a building a relationship there that could be interesting going forward but also expands on what uhura is able to do on the show so we if we have an episode or a story where communications is kind of minimal she can fill in in other avenues yeah. on the show so i think that's really important and i'm hoping to see them do that with uh, nurse chapel as well well it even informs you know that uh, moment in the original series in which I, I forget the episode but in which spock needs uhura to fix the comm systems and he says i believe in you i know that you can do this and at least it's kind of building on that back uh building out that backstory and that it later informs what happens in, you know, I guess 55, 56 years ago. At what point does Uhura pull out an instrument and start like singing slam songs about Spock? It's going to happen at some point, right? <laughs> I, I can't wait for that. <laughs> it's going to happen. There's, I know they've said there's going to be comedy episodes of this show. And I'm sure in some comedy episode in the future of Strange New Worlds, we're going to have something like that happen. Yeah, I, I'm fearful about like a... Uh, a comedy episode in that like you had lighter episodes of deep space nine for example you know like something like take me out to the hollow suite i wouldn't and they're funny moments but it wasn't as if they were thirsty for laughs and i just as long as they're not begging you know for us to laugh at the really rough punchline uh, do it more like kind of like a lighter episode in what you're doing like throwaway lines that uh, are, are quite dry. And I think we're praising the show, especially with a lot of uh, Spock's delivery, I think, in uh, episode two. I would be looking at episodes like Trouble with Tribbles and a piece of the action where it's like the circumstances are what's funny, not the characters just turning into like cut ups. Um, Trek has a checkered history with this. It's like a lot of the shows really struggled at it. You look at you know, the, what is it, two days and two nights on Enterprise, or there's yeah. various others that are just really, like, clunky, but you can understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to tap into that kind of lighthearted fun of Star Trek. That's something the original series made look very easy, and TNG, when it was, like, had unlocked some of those, could really deliver as well. DS9 was pretty strong as well, but they are difficult, and, you know, I think we're going to get one relatively soon on Strange New Worlds, and so my fingers are, are crossed that they can pull it off. It seems like the cast has the chemistry um we've seen that um ethan peck can kind of do some funny moments he did have some amusing moments as spock on um not just on this show but also on discovery and i really do think anson mount will be able to navigate light comedy very well yeah yeah look i'll, I'll shout out a couple episodes of say voyager you know say something a little problematic but body and soul with uh, the doctor and seven um and kind of that that body change episode as well as uh, 
Tinker Tailor Doctor Spy, which I think uh, I, I'm a much bigger fan of than you are, but I think you at least found that amusing as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and also um, the lighter aspects of Someone to Watch Over Me, where it's you know seven on the dates and the doctor giving therapy or not therapy, but like guidance as to how to behave on a date. Like a lot of that was really funny as well. Yeah, you know, uh, that's what I always do on a date. I start singing do, uh, dear, uh, female, dear. You know, that's, that's great, great for dating right there. What's the funniest episode of Enterprise? Uh, <laughs> is, is it two days, two nights? Like, I, I'm trying to, like, I'm stretching my head. Yeah, because like, if you were to ask the showrunners of Enterprise, and I know there was various, but if you ask them as a collective, what were the comedy episodes or the, the funny episodes of Enterprise? I think they would say that one. They would say Unexpected, which obviously has uh, not, yeah, that one's not aged well. But it, um, it, it didn't even, it, even yeah. at the time it aired, it, it, it wasn't good. Yeah, so I feel like they would name those two. You could make an argument just for the, some of the lighter aspects of uh, Into a Mirror Darkly, like just some of the Mirror Universe stuff is kind of campy fun, but it's not really a comedy two-parter in any way. I, w- I was going to name that episode just because th- there are moments in there that like, make me laugh. And, uh, and and I'll be honest, a lot of it is for the wrong reasons that haven't aged well. Um, I'll, I'll just be honest, like, um, essentially, uh, Hoshi getting slut-shamed, like, by yeah. uh, T'Pol. I, I, I get it. It's not appropriate, but it is. I, I couldn't help but laugh at that moment, you know. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, if you disagree with me, I, I apologize. But anyway, it's not, I, 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 it was still funny. Um, so I don't know, maybe if, uh, uh, here's my pitch for a comedy episode of, uh, of Strange New Worlds. It's, uh, Hammer goes to, uh, meet, uh, somebody at Botany, cause he's a big Botany fan. Uh, it's his pal <laughs> Sulu, who still hasn't made it up to navigation at this point. And from there, they go to meet the art history teacher that we know, or the, the art historian that we know Enterprise has at least one of, based on Space Seed. Remember Khan's future wife was right the ship's art historian i i you, you you're talking about utilitarian players and how it's kind of tough with counselor troy could you imagine if the art historian was one of the main characters on uh, enterprise it would be limited but i remember you and i debating what um the spore scientist was going to do for four seasons of discovery <laughs> so i guess anything's <laughs> possible on star trek Although i think Cam, be... <laughs> well, what has yeah. stamets done <laughs> Say over the last two seasons, like those poor actors, those poor, poor actors. Um, I think it would be really fun to have like a Hammer romance episode where um, you have kind of a riff on um, Cyrano de Bergerac because Hammer isn't the most um, light and romantic of characters and he's getting advice from someone else. I think you could have a lot of fun with that. He's getting uh, telepathic advice, you know, like uh, because we know those abilities exist there. And Izuhura giving him the advice? Because we have a relationship build up here. Like, that could be really fun. I think it'd have to be another telepathic character uh, giving him the advice. I would say uh, it would be... Here's the comedy. Not not Spock. Not Spock. It's Spock. It's Spock (laughs) sitting in the mess hall behind Hammer, giving him telepathic uh, advice. Because, of course, he has his girlfriend to pring. And it's all about, uh, you know, uh, Spock romanticizing uh, or helping uh, Hammer romanticize uh, other or not romanticize, but romance other people, I should say. These ideas are free, Paramount. (laughs) (laughs) Cam, at least they're not derivative. Okay, that's right. That's right. I did enjoy Hammer talking about being a pacifist, though. And about yeah, like yeah. that desire to defend the ship, and as he said, like pacifism doesn't mean inactivity. Like he wants to play an active role. It's the sort of thing that, like again, a little tossed-off bit of conversation with Ahura just added so much dimension to this character. They're doing a really fantastic job at making all of these characters feel like people you could easily build an episode or around. Ortegas is the only one I'm like, just give us a little more, and we've got kind of everyone covered. She's the only one I'm like, come on, guys, a little bit more. Yeah, who knew that Hammer was the Andrew Garfield role from uh, Hacksaw Ridge as part of the Enterprise? <laughs> Don't know how many other people other than you will get that reference, <laughs> but uh, 
Uh, do you feel that we were kind of cheated out of a physical Gorn sighting? I, I, I get it. Uh, from what we understand, uh, Kirk's encounter was the first time that, you know, Starfleet had officially seen them. What yeah. I thought could have happened, though, is during kind of the uh, the flashback sequence or the mind meld sequences, you had one La'an uh, recalling her sight of, you know, the Gorn, uh, Gorn individuals down on that nursery planet. I think they want to tease them out. And I think we're going to have a Gorn physical encounter at some point in the future, perhaps in a romance episode. Um, but uh, it's the sort of thing that um, I think it's like they gave us the tease here. We had the space combat episode with the Gorn showing their space tactics. I think we're going to have an encounter maybe even in a season finale situation I think they did a really good job, though, establishing early on with the little girl making the clicking sounds to imitate the Gorn that uh, reminded me a lot of the little girl in Hereditary. But um, the way they establish that right up front, and then when you have the mind meld sequence and you hear those sounds, it was a pretty effective little bit of, you know, horror movie filmmaking to establish them just as a sound that is scary. So I think they're going to want to build them up and... Sometimes when you build things up a lot, it gets it can deflate when you actually see them physically. But I'm looking forward to seeing them try because I think the Gorn are something that we've said in the past. We did a whole episode about the Gorn. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. But um, there's very minimal done with them, really. And I think this could be a real chance to kind of, in a way, take back what was done on Enterprise, which was limited by the CG of the time. Right. Um, and I think kind of... Not take it back, I should say, but maybe just make that a little more sophisticated. Like, give us a updated version of the Gorn that's scary, that has presence, and hopefully, as we go forward to the show, has some complexity to it. But I think we're going to have to earn that episode. I don't think it's going to arrive just in, like, the first real attack episode they have. I, I want practical effects, though. We don't need to have, like, a cheesy rubber costume, but I think the, the Gorn would look far scarier uh, in practical versions rather than more of the uh, stylized CG that we've been seeing from the series so far. What do you think is more likely, CG or practical? Well, okay, so remember the comet episode and we were remarking on the uh, look of the shepherd and we couldn't quite figure out if it was practical or CG, but uh, I, I found it later. It's actually, it was a mix of both. So they are willing to, you know... Uh, no pun intended, but augment the yeah. uh, practical effects with CG effects. So I, I think it could be a mix. I wonder if maybe they're just doing a bit of a practice run with the shepherd for what might be, uh, hopefully, you know, maybe a, a Gorn sighting down the road. Yeah, you can do the classic look, but CG augment the eyes and the mouth, for example. That would probably work. I think, didn't they add Gorn blinking back to the updated effects on the original series oh. episode arena? I think yeah, they did. familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but when I look at the Gorn on Enterprise, obviously it's older CG, so I'm not going to grade it for that, but it's like, it didn't quite look right just visually as a translation from the original Gorn to the CG one, so I would suspect that what we see on this show is going to wind up being a lot closer visually to the Arena Gorn. That would be my guess. Okay. Uh, now, okay, do you think of the word Gorn as kind of like both singular and plural like similar to like sheep is that kind of your the way that you approach the word yeah or like borg yes because do you remember that star trek convention in seattle in which uh we had like a contest in which you would go and pitch kind of a uh <laughs> a spin-off idea or it was like a movie idea and i got up there on stage i i ended up placing in second place, you and I, we kind of worked on a pitch together, and I went and did the presentation. And uh, Richard Arnold, who is Gene Roddenberry's former assistant, he kept standing there, and he kept going, they're Gorns. It, it, you keep saying it wrong. It, it's not the Gorn. It, it's Gorns. I'd never heard anyone in my life say Gorns before. But this is the guy who, if he heard it through the grapevine, he was the guy that was essentially sending out memos under Gene Roddenberry's name when Gene Roddenberry wasn't in the best of health. And he heard this through the grapevine, you know, but mind you, I, I, but it's coming from pretty reliable sources. And essentially announcing what was canon and what was not canon. Essentially 
uh, David Gerald, one of the writers from uh, Star Trek, uh, he did you know the original series, the animated series, early seasons of TNG. He made references to kind of uh, Gene's errand boy, all of a sudden just announcing that the animated series wasn't canon, whereas they always appro- approached the uh, the animated series as canon. And there's also references like parts of Undiscovered Country weren't canon as well. And it all kind of came from this fella, Richard Arnold. And, I don't know, just to hit, have him, like, uh, lecture me about Gorn versus Gorns, I think that fellow is wrong. I, I, I don't think he's a be-all, end-all when it comes to kind of um, uh, what is Star Trek and what is not Star Trek. Well, it's one of those things where, like, I guess for a while there, I mean, in terms of the past with things like Star Trek Six and whatever, that's ridiculous. But when it comes to, like, that post-Roddenberry period and kind of when the shows had kind of gone off the air. It's like, I don't know who was establishing canon at that point. There were so many arguments in fandom. Do you remember about what was canon and what wasn't? That I guess there was maybe a hole to fill in some way that he felt he could assist with determining what was canon and what wasn't. Um, it seems like now they're being much more clear with fans as to what actually is. And a lot of these new shows have been designed to establish things that maybe were in question. But it was a... It was kind of like the Wild West of canon at that point in time. And uh, I guess Gorn slash Gorns fell into that. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. Next episode, Cam. Do you think we're going to see the Enterprise in Dry Dock, you know, getting some uh, fixing done to their hull? Yes. I think it's going to be kind of the... Do you remember there was that episode? It's not called Damage. I don't remember what it's called. An Enterprise where the ship is, well, badly damaged. And then the next one... It deals with the ship being in like um, repair and then the repair station goes out of control. Um, I think we're going to have something like that, not necessarily in terms of what the, ne- the next episode is going to be, but more of like acknowledging what has happened on this one. I know they're not doing full serialization, but I think they're going to use this as an excuse to be like, well, the Enterprise is in repairs. And in the meantime, here's what's going on. Is the episode you're thinking of, is that dead stop? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Isn't that a season two episode, not a season three episode after, because uh, Damage was the season three episode featuring Casey Biggs as an alien yeah. uh, uh, captain, but I, but maybe the, okay, yeah, actually, sorry, like, uh, I, I, you weren't talking about the episode Damage, no, but there was an episode before Dead Stop in which uh, the NX-01 was damaged and needed repair, right? Yeah, I don't remember what the circumstances yeah, were, yeah. but yeah, the ship okay. got banged up. We're on the same page. We're on the same page. But yeah, like it, it's more like kind of like give our crew a bit of uh, breathing room, you know, just let them take it easy for an episode. And, and hopefully again, it, it, maybe maybe we don't need to do a life and death episode. Yeah. And the characters right now feel fairly well formed. And now it's time to kind of let them bounce off each other a little more because the last, you know, four episodes have been directed by fairly sturdy Star Trek plotting. So Let's kind of loosen up a bit, have some fun, and I'm sure we'll have more, you know, big adventures going forward. But it feels like as we fall into episode five, which will, I guess, mark the halfway point in the season, it's kind of like where you want that breathing room before we can kind of gear up towards the back half. Okay. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm pumped for uh, episode five. We're almost at the halfway mark of the season, so that's going to be interesting because I think that's when you can kind of really judge where it's going. Uh, I, I think by the halfway mark of um, season two of Picard, we were firmly of the belief that the show had gone off the rails and there was no hope for it moving forward. But um, I don't think that's something that we're going to be concerned about uh, for uh, <laughs> my favorite episode title ever, Cam, Spock Amok. Sounds like a comedy episode to me, potentially. Um... <laughs> It'd be great if it's not. <laughs> it's a very serious downbeat dour episode yeah because yeah, i'm thinking back to some of the more recent you know halfway points in some of these series where it's like you know picard season one you had stardust city rag which was a train wreck um but uh i'm trying to remember what like the halfway point of like the discovery first season was it's well, we like had the, um, it, or the first season I, I think you could say it was into the forest i go yeah that was a mid-season that, finale yeah and and that that's a strong mid-season finale mm-hmm, it was yeah so I'm expecting something along those lines. And just the show, if the next episode holds true, like we're going to have five pretty consistently good episodes right through Strange New Worlds. Like, 
it's not a huge leap to land in the uh, all-timer circle for uh, best first seasons on Star Trek. And I really do think, in terms of these live-action shows, I think that Strange New Worlds has a really good shot at it right now. It's been sturdy, a word you used a moment ago. Uh, Cam, uh, <laughs> the halfway mark of <laughs> Season 3 of Discovery... Uh, you can make the argument that it was either uh, Scavengers or Unification 3, you know, Episode 6 yeah. or Episode 7. Uh, both turds, in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what would you say is the best first season? Which one would we rank? I guess Original Series is the best first season, I think. Yeah, because you, you look, let, let's be honest, you can uh, say no to TNG and Deep Space Nine. I think you could make an argument. Uh, Voyager is actually pretty strong first season. I, for me, it just Enterprise just didn't do it for me, but I, I I'm happy to reconsider that one as well. I think Lower Decks was fairly strong, and look, we're we're only what like um three episodes into Prodigy, and we're still loving it. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Prodigy, I don't know. I, I think after maybe uh, I think we're like maybe eight eight or nine episodes in. Um, it, it's making a strong argument for it just depends on how things wrap. Is, is season one like twenty episodes though? Um, I think so. Yes. Yeah, which is just crazy, but uh, yeah, I, I, I would say yeah, I, I feel confident that this one could stick the landing and become you know one of the all-time great first seasons. Uh, Strange New Worlds, that is. Which is exciting, and I had just a little bit of a other news note I wanted to just talk to you about, which is they are putting out the Blu-ray of um Trekkies. I saw the they've yeah. remastered it in 4K for Blu-ray. It's not 4K Blu-ray, but Blu-ray. Um. And it just kind of made me reflect when I saw that news story on how fun that movie was. Is it time for like a Trekkies 3? It feels like the sort of thing that you could do another one that as much fun as that one is, it really is kind of a period piece now. It's about like 90s Trek fandom. Is it time to look at another Trekkies documentary set now about modern Trek fandom? Well, I think like it's more like fandom has gone mainstream now, whereas yeah. the folks you were following 25 years ago let, let's be honest like they were you and me but they were kind of considered like the uh the weirdos the outcasts you know uh what, what's with this strange you know little niche ecosystem you know and now it's i don't know i i don't think that's the case so much and uh, not that there's anything wrong with being a weirdo i embrace that of my own character but um it, it fandom has gone mainstream in a way that uh, it wasn't 25 years ago. So I, I definitely think that there is room for, you know, a Trekkies three at this point. And we did an episode where we talked about Trekkies one and two. And the problem with Trekkies two, in addition to not just having some of the big personalities celebrity wise that the first one did, Trekkies two didn't really have much of an angle or an argument in terms of what had evolved post the first Trekkies. Whereas I feel now there's genuinely like room for a really compelling follow-up to that first one well you know that they uh were really stretching uh things out when <laughs> they, they aired what like a solid 12 minutes in a row of like a fan film uh, yeah and it was and it wasn't like like don't want to disparage anyone's hard work you could tell there's a lot of love put into this fan film in which it was essentially kind of a western themed episode of star trek but we didn't really need to sit there and watch 12 minutes of this and it kind of tells you that maybe the uh documentarians didn't have a whole lot to say about where fandom had gone you know but you know just a couple years after trekkies the first one had uh premiered yeah yeah i would have preferred they just showed a snippet of that and then enclosed the uh the short film and the special features or something yeah that would have been i think much easier to sit through than the uh extended extended fan fiction segment of that movie so no i think that could be interesting um i'll be curious like i would imagine you know what if trekkies sells a lot of blu-rays they'd probably be open to it because you don't have to sell that many blu-rays to probably justify the costs of another trekkies movie yeah i i'm I'm skeptical about uh, how much sales are going to get from physical media at this point. Yeah. But I, I wonder, though, if kind of the what what you're saying, though, Cam, is that uh, what, what do you think a documentary like this is going to cost? You know, like Netflix, uh, you know, shoots out documentaries like nonstop, mostly because they're pretty cheap to make. You know, and so it's kind of like I, I can totally buy them just doing this uh yeah a little bit on the cheap but still the production values are still going to be very good just because how uh much you know digital cameras and um uh, you know lighting techniques have developed since you know 25 years ago 
Also, Paramount Plus, like, why not just shoot that documentary for their streaming service? Yeah, exactly. Bring people in. I think you can market it easily enough. Just, hey, Trekkies 3, how has fandom evolved after 25 years? That's right. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. You can, of course, also leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews are very much appreciated and help with rankings and all that sort of thing. Of course, next week we'll be back with the fifth episode of Strange New Worlds. Tyler, what is that title? Spock Amok. Boom. And you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam Vias in Visions of Gore Nurseries Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P, P is in Possums, Ducks, and Snakes, O-R-T-O-N. <laughs> Only Pike could just rattle off those three animal <laughs> names so quickly. Like, he didn't even have to think about that. <laughs> and he was a total badass while he did it. Oh, okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.